This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, June 10th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, lawmakers turn their attention to the state flag following recent protests against systemic racism and police brutality. Then a look at the history of the often tumultuous relationship between Mississippi's black community and law enforcement. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a new documentary premiering on MPB television examines food insecurity in the state's capital city. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi flag is receiving notable attention from all circles following a weekend of protests against systemic racism and police brutality. The flag, which features the Confederate emblem, has long been a source of consternation for many Mississippians. On Monday, during his daily press briefing, Governor Tate Reeves sidestepped the issue of flag and what it represents, instead invoking a failed 2001 referendum to change the flag. I see a flag that the vast majority of Mississippians voted in 2001 to maintain as Mississippi's state flag. I made a commitment to the voters in 2019 that if the flag is going to be changed, it's not going to be changed by a bunch of politicians in Jackson. It needs to be changed by the people of our state. But the recent protests are renewing interest among Mississippi legislators to take action on the flag issue. Democrat Robert Johnson of Natchez is the party leader in the House. He tells our Desiree Frazier lawmakers should be the ones to make the change, and they're talking across the aisle to make it possible. Well, all I'm at liberty to say right now is that we have uh, a, a number of us have talked to people across the aisle about the possibility of taking up a suspension resolution, and uh, we just talk about whether or not we can do something this session. Do you see that possibly happening this session? Yeah, I think there's a possibility it could happen this session. What do you think it is that even got it to this point? Because in the past, there has been such a um, resistance to changing it. I think that the, uh, the 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 events that have happened in the last uh, couple of weeks in this country, 
the uh, George Floyd murder. And I think that it is uh, heightens people sensitivity about issues about race. And so if people who were, were not inclined to have that discussion before, uh, they want to see what we can do about uh, making uh, changes in terms of our race relations and whether or not the symbols that this state has around itself uh, tend to lend itself to uh, further divide that we don't need. Thank you. Do you think there's enough white legislators that would support this? I think quietly, if there was a secret vote and nobody had to know, I think it would pass the House today. But uh, people have to reconcile taking that vote with whatever public backlash they would have from people who are traditionalists in this state. The governor has said that he thinks that it should go before the people as a referendum on the ballot and let citizens vote if they want it changed or not. Your thoughts on that? Well, the legislature that adopted this flag, and I think it's the legislature that should uh, should change it. The legislature adopted this flag sometime in the mid, or, or, well, I think 1894. Uh, that wasn't done by public referendum. It was done by the legislature. I think the, cha- the flag, the change needs to be made by the legislature. We're a representative government. Our job is to represent people and represent the issues that affect the state of Mississippi, and that's uh, that's what we should do. This is one of those issues. In your mind, what would you like to see happen going forward in dealing with racism, police brutality, and in reconciling all of this? I think I would like to see us get rid of all Confederate symbols and statues. I'd like to see us get rid of the, the Confederate battle flag as part of our flag. I'd like for us to have uh, uh, sweeping uh, reform in terms of the way we train policemen and in terms of how we qualify them to take the position. And I think that the if we're going to raise the qualification, if we're going to intensify the training in terms of cultural and social sensitivity training, I think we should have a requisite uh, amount of pay. I think we, we ought to look for an opportunity to have more well-trained and more qualified people. Representative Johnson of Natchez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. In 2001, Mississippians voted 65 to 35 percent along racial lines to keep the flag flying. Republican Tracy Arnold of Boonville thinks voters should decide if the flag stays or goes and says the deadline for introducing a bill to change the flag has passed. Well, personally, if uh, there's an endeavor to change the flag, then I think that the people that want to change the flag should get enough signatures to put it on the ballot and let the people speak again. But as a legislator, I don't feel it's my place to override the previous vote of the people to keep the existing flag. How do you feel about the recent protests about racism and police brutality? Well, personally, you know, it's the difference between right and wrong. It's the black, white, Hispanic, or what have you. So I think the issue needs to be the issue. And that's why we have a Department of Justice and the Judicial Branch of Government it has renewed interest in the flag issue. If if there are enough legislators to support the change, how would you feel? Well, if there are enough 
legislators to support the change, then that means a bill would have to be drafted. We're beyond the time or season in our session to draft a piece of legislation. Uh, but the general census, from what I'm understanding, is people think it should be left up to the general voting populace, you know, and voted on again on the ballot if there's enough people out there interested in changing. Otherwise, leave it like it is. Personally, how do you feel about the flag? Personally, um, and I have talked to some of my constituents in my community there, some African-American constituents, and, and they don't feel like the flag represents um, what a lot of people proclaim that it does. Um, personally, I don't think changing the flag is going to change the hearts and minds of people. And I really believe that the only thing that can change the hearts and minds of people, especially the hearts of people, is their relationship with their creator. Would you support changing the flag, though? I would not support changing the flag unless the general populace of this state votes on it themselves to change it. Well, Representative Tracy Arnold, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for sharing your, your thoughts. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. Coming up, a look at the history of the often tumultuous relationship between Mississippi's black community and law enforcement. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Eleven days before the death of George Floyd, Jackson State University professor Dr. Robbie Luckett published an op-ed in the New York Times reflecting on the 1970 shooting deaths of two students at the hands of police on the college's campus. The message that America cannot forget what happened and the injustices that followed. In part one of a two-part conversation, Dr. Luckett shares how the message of that article is woven into the fabric of the current push for racial justice. So... I believe fundamentally that as a historian, it's my job really to, to teach and to talk about how our past continues to impact our present and how what has happened in the past really informs who we are today, specifically as a state, as a city, and as a nation. And I do think that what has happened in Mississippi um, is a function of us being a part of America and a not uh, apart from America that is an essentially American story. And so what I'd hope to point out is that the, the violence, the um, assault on our community at Jackson State in 1970, which went completely unpunished, there was no justice served, is part of a longer story that we can see evidence throughout American history and up to today. And at that time, you know, there were two contexts in particular that I, I thought were pertinent. One, of course, was the global pandemic uh, and the coronavirus and COVID-19 and how there's you know strong evidence and, and, and lots of information and stories out there about how the coronavirus has disproportionately impacted poor and marginalized communities, and particularly communities of people of color, and how the lack or the um, relatively ineffective government response to COVID-19 is, is another form of 
the same kind of systemic violence. And then the other thing at that time was the death of Ahmaud Arbery, which had just started hitting the news, even though it had happened several months uh, before. And that the pursuit for justice in the case for Jackson State and, and the members of our community who lived through that and have lived with that pain for the past 50 years is very directly tied to that story today. Uh, not surprisingly, frankly, as a historian, uh, although unexpected in the specific details, were new cases in this regard, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And I think that what we found was a moment in time with our community, especially in the context of the pain and the suffering around the last couple of months of um, isolation due to, to COVID, that just reached a boiling point. People were, were, were suffering, they were hurting, and they found a, 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 a moment in time that seemed like a breaking point. And that has resulted in the protests and the uprisings we've seen all over the nation. So I couldn't have predicted what exactly would have happened when I wrote that, um, that op-ed for the New York Times. Um, but it doesn't entirely surprise me that something else did happen because this has been repeated throughout American history. And that's what we have to learn from. When something happens today, social media makes it known within minutes, or it can certainly. Uh, but as you said, we learned about some of these deaths months after the fact. But back in the 1960s, during the civil rights era, there wasn't that kind of um, there wasn't that kind of coverage, or at least it took longer. So I wanted to ask specifically, like in the Jackson State shootings, was that national news and was it big national news? Uh, yes, uh, and I would make two points. Um, one, it was absolutely national news at that time and in that moment, and you had national press from all over the country coming to Jackson State. But the Jackson State story quickly got obscured by anti-war pro college campus protests all over the country and what had happened to white students at Kent State 10 days earlier. And then there was also a narrative that began to be driven around the Jackson State shootings at the time that blamed the victims. And that's a pretty common thing in American history as well. They became known as the Jackson State riots when, in fact, there were no riots happening at Jackson State. The police at the time blamed their actions on a supposed sniper in the women's dormitory, which was completely fictitious. Um, and so the narrative around Jackson State, even though at the moment when it was national news, um, there were certainly there was a lot of attention around it. It quickly gets obscured. And the, the second point I would make kind of largely about media is I would say, yes, we have access to, to information and to images in, in obviously a much quicker fashion and, and, and knowledge about these events. But media and images have always been key parts of the civil rights movement in America. Um, if we go back to Emmett Till and, and his mother's decision to have the open casket funeral to show the world what they had done to her son, the images of Emmett Till's body leads an entire generation of activists to, to action. If we think about some of the most searing images of the modern civil rights movement, we think about uh, police dogs and fire hoses in Birmingham. Right. We think about Martin Luther King assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And so the power of images and media has always been there. It's just it, we have evolved, obviously, to, to a different kind of stage of access in that regard. 
Dr. Robbie Luckett is an associate professor of history at Jackson State University and the director of the Margaret Walker Center. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a new documentary premiering on MPB television examines food insecurity in the state's capital city. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Skin cancer tends to be something that is totally related to the amount of sun damage or sun exposure that we have. It is cumulative, meaning that you start when you're born, and the more sun damage that you get to your skin, the more chance or risk there is of you getting skin cancers. No matter if you're lighter skinned, dark skinned, or African American, or other races that have more pigmented skin, all of us can get skin cancer at some point. And again, the older you are, the more sun damage you have. Those are the two ways that really contribute to this. And this is because our skin really is one of the organs that has a really rapid turnover. So we're constantly making new skin cells And any organ in the body that produces cells at a high rate is more risky to get types of cancers just because of that increased cell turnover. The main factor here with sun exposure is, of course, UV light. So ultraviolet light is one of the main things that can damage the DNA in those cells to the point where they mutate and uh, turn into skin cancers. What is currently recommended, particularly for lighter skin individuals, is to have a screening. You can do that at home and you can also do it by, with a medical professional of someone just looking at your skin that's trained to do, to do that. Now, if you're at home and your spouse or significant other or yourself can look and just look for sort of the ABCs and those are asymmetry in a, a lesion, something that is like a mole. The asymmetry is the border of it. You know, is it a smooth border? Is it asymmetric and not like a, a sort of a circular or oval type lesion on your skin? The second is border. So is that an irregular border? The third is color, particularly a color change. So screening is very important. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Food deserts, food swamps, food apartheid, all terms used to represent the socioeconomic landscape of Jackson, Mississippi, in the new documentary, Short Fertile Ground, premiering on MPB TV tonight. The Fertile Ground documentary follows the life of Jackson residents experiencing challenges accessing healthy food options 
while also detailing the systematic policy failures that have allowed food swamps to thrive. Featuring interviews with local farmers, food activists, and city leaders, the documentary also spotlights the growing possibility to transform Jackson's local food system. Director Alex Warren and executive producer Robbie Piantanita join our Michael Gidry to discuss. As America currently is undergoing major shifts, it's really important for us to start considering what small ways will actually make an impact in our community. Um, It's important to consider how food connects us to every avenue uh, of our lives. And this is on a national level. This isn't just local. Um, The way we get our food, the value of food, the uprising of food deserts and food swamps and food insecurities, and what does all of that mean, you know? We live in abundance in America, and we operate from from a place of scarcity. So why is this, and how does that work, and what are people doing about it? Robbie, as a producer, how did this project come to fruition? Well, this project is um, part of the public art challenge, um, and it was a a project that Bloomberg Philanthropies funded. And Travis uh, Crabtree and Salam Rita worked on uh, the grant for Jackson to work on the food system. And so this um, project is a first uh, foray into that larger work. The the film... You watch it, uh, and, and it's and it's obviously designed to to raise awareness of the problem of food food insecurities uh, and food deserts in places like Jackson. Uh, and the film hits on you know, the, the factors that go into it. But the film itself doesn't exist in a vacuum. It it appears to, it seems to be part of a a larger initiative. So, what is the film's role in this more broad initiative to address food insecurities, uh, both in Jackson, Mississippi, and the rural South? Yeah, well, like Robbie was kind of mentioning, the documentary is part of a larger initiative that's uh, called Fertile Ground, Inspiring Dialogue About Food Access. And their mode has been, up to this point, to use public art as a medium to inspire dialogue about food access in and around Jackson and and Mississippi. Um, I can't speak for the next steps that they're going to make, but the film is one part of that initial uh, initiative. So it's an overhaul, in a way, of how we look at urban design, and it starts with food, um, which is a really interesting uh, dynamic because Mississippi has such a complex relationship with food. Um, during slavery and sharecropping periods, food was used as a tool of control. And what we're seeing is today in urban food swamps and food deserts, this has become another form of control. In Mississippi, our, our largest export is agriculture, but most of that is uh, commodity crops like soybeans that are grown in mass and shipped out, and very little, like regular food, is grown for the local community. Uh, the, the farmers are paid large subsidies to do these single uh, sort of crops instead of growing kind of small farms growing lots of different vegetables and lots of different uh, products that can help feed the state. And um, it, it gets even kind of deeper than that. There's Mississippi is one of only three states in the country that actually has an additional tax on these very basic grocery items. That's something that we, we all would like to see change. As a documentarian, as a filmmaker, how important is it to have a, a subject and a place uh, that 
resonates with you personally uh, at the heart of your film? Well, I think it's huge. Um, I mean, I've done jobs before as a director where I wasn't as familiar with the landscape and didn't have uh, an interest in learning more, specifically for brands selling uh, certain products. Uh, you know, my heart can't be in that as much as something like this just by nature. This is a, a, a project where I'm seeing my own personal philosophies shift. I'm trying to get healthier myself. I'm trying to use the lessons that I've learned um, through the making of this film in my own life. And what I'm learning, what I'm gathering is that I've always looked at food as some sort of product, um, as some sort of consumption tool. And I am seeing now like that when we gather at our tables as families for Sunday dinner, um, there's something huge about this. It's a community tool that informs us culturally and, and spiritually. And food becomes so much more than just a tick of a box that you need to do so that you can keep going to your next meeting. So this project, yeah, the, the subject matter is, is important to me on a very personal level. My family are still in Mississippi. I plan on working in Mississippi until the day that I die. So this is big for me, um, and it changed me. And so I would say it's, it's massively important in this project that the subject matter hit me uh, somewhere soulful and somewhere real. We've been with Robbie Piantanita and Alex Warren. They are the executive producer and director of Fertile Grounds. Thank you so much, guys. Um, we appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Fertile Ground airs tonight on MPB television at 7 o'clock. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.